Non-rock-a-boatus must stop. I don't want to rock the boat. I want to sink it. Are you going to bark all day, little doggy, or are you going to bite? Brett, delusional is okay in your worldview. I'm an animal. You don't chastise chickens for being delusional. You don't chastise pigs for being delusional. So you calling me delusional using your worldview is perfectly okay. It doesn't really hurt. <laughs> she hung up on me. Yes! 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 What? What? Desperate times call for faithful men and not for careful men. The careful men come later and write the biographies of the faithful men, lauding them for their courage. Go into all the world and make disciples. Not go into the world and make buddies. Not to make brosives. Right. Don't go in the world and make homies. Right. Disciples. Well, I, yeah. got, I got a bit of a jiggle neck. <laughs> <laughs> That's a joke, Pastor. When we have the real message of truth, we cannot let somebody say they're speaking truth when yeah. they're not. Take an amazing journey. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that, of course, is the Great Commission from Matthew chapter 28. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Apologia radio this is luke the bear i am flying solo today so as you can see i have nobody with me no joy the mama who has a new baby which we're very grateful for and we're praising god for and she is awesome if you haven't seen her on facebook she's a beaut georgia summer hunter is her name so joy's joy's on on maternity leave and and pastor jeff is uh in is in Kauai right now with pastor zach so I'm flying solo, and I'm very excited, though, because I have a very special guest with me today who's a very dear friend of ours, and I'll get to him here in a second. But today, I specifically, I want to talk about what is the mission of the church, and I want to look at even more specific than how has the church failed to live up to our calling with the Great Commission. And uh, this is actually a, a little project I've been working on for here for a little while. I did a um, three-part series in Kauai back in March, I believe, on the mission of the church. Um, and we're going to be doing some little videos and stuff. And I may even have a small booklet in the works I'm hoping to get done here next year or so. Anyways, let me go ahead and bring in our special guest, P. Andrew Sandlin. Welcome to the show, brother. Thank you, Luke. I uh, love and appreciate you, dear friends at Apologia, and glad I can be back. Hope we can do it many more times. Look forward to seeing you at the RefCon here in about three, uh, what, about a month or so, actually? Yep, just two days shy of a month. So, he mentioned it. I'll go ahead and talk about it. We got ReformCon 2019 coming up here real quick. Like you said, two days shy of a month. It'll be here in Mesa. You can get tickets at reformcon.org. Um, super excited. Like, like Andrew Sandlin said, Dr. Sandlin, he will be there. We'll have Dr. Joe Boot, Dr. James White. We'll have John Sampson, Jeff Durbin, Toby Sumter, Cross Politics, Sheologians, 
And then the last day, of course, we have an, an abortion now day. I will be speaking, Zachary Conover, Pastor Jeff again, and our good friend Rusty Thomas. So we have a jam-packed uh, conference. You can, again, get your tickets at reformcon.org. And we actually will hopefully be announcing here, maybe even today, a little uh, special something for those who register by a certain date. So be watching for that. So, Andrew, what should we call you? What do you want us to call you? You can just call me Andrew, but only because you're my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I never know because I know we're like on friend level now. We're a Facebook official, so I call you Andrew, but I don't know what you want to be called in the public sphere. You certainly may call me Andrew. That's right. fine with me. <laughs> so tell us about yourself. What do you do? And then we'll we'll get into the discussion. All right. Just briefly, um, I am a founder and president of a conservative distinctively Christian think tank, Christian foundation called the Center for Cultural Leadership, whose goal in short is to influence Christians, to influence the culture in distinctively Christian ways, with the goal ultimately of bringing all areas of life and thought under the authority of Jesus Christ and the Word of God. Uh, it's a think tank. I joke with people, what do tanks do? Well, they run over things and they blow up people. Well, that isn't quite what our think tank does, but we do blow up bad ideas and we also try to replace them with good uh, biblical ideas. And we do it by writing and uh, by speaking, uh, all sorts of books and lectures and traveling and so on. We've got two full-time uh, scholars, two part-time scholars. And uh, that's essentially what we do. I think that the website probably is up on the graphic or will be, christianculture.com. Easy to remember, all written solidly, so you can find out more about us there. And I blog at DocSandlin.com, and you can find out about all the materials there. So that's the commercial, Luke. All right, excellent. Thank you very much, brother. So um, so to kind of lead into this discussion, I uh, uh, well, that graphic does look good. By the way, I need to mention um, that the, the, gra the thumbnail graphic on YouTube may or may not be the correct graphic. <laughs> Something happened, it was YouTube was not cooperating, so it might be the, the graphic from the last show we did. Um, but regardless, um, it doesn't ultimately matter. Um, so to lead into this discussion, um, I read a small book by our dear friend Joe Boot called Four Mission. Um, basically, it was a, a little short book. I think I think it's like sixty pages, yeah. maybe something. Yeah. Uh, on basically the mission of the church, and I was really just kind of blown away by how profound and in that just that little book was and been really influenced by that. Like I said, I did a three-part series in Kauai. Um, and um, also along with that, then then Andrew has been very influential in our ministry and especially in my life in regards to the conversation of the Imperial Gospel. And and so that in my my mind, that kind of all ties together. And, um, and so, like I said, I'm working on a small project here. We actually, I interviewed Andrew, well, when was that? July in yep. Toronto. Um ish toronto ish um mm -hmm. <laughs> grimsby and um and so we'll have some stuff hopefully here in the next six months or so it's going to be a little bit longer to get to that one but uh regardless i thought it'd be a good opportunity especially with with everything going on right now in in the news and in our culture as we're getting gearing up for this next presidential debate um you, there's been a lot of wackiness going yeah. on the last week um in regards to the climate change and yep. um and then also even within the church we we 
we've seen a lot this year, um, and especially in the last month or so, um, in regards to uh, intersectionality and some mm-hmm. of this racial divide and and stuff like that, and 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 um, uh, socialism, social justice, all the stuff that's that's uh, creeping uh, into the church and is affecting the church. And um, that all kind of ties into this discussion. So um, to start off, I want to just, you know, I read Matthew 28, like I said at the beginning, and that's a great commission. Jesus came or said to the disciples with all authority, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he, he doesn't just hold, keep that authority to himself. He's, he's giving that authority then to the disciples. And he says, go, therefore, we all know, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's where people leave off, right? Then like when you talk about the Great yeah. Commission, they just they read that, and they don't even read the part about authority, right? <laughs> they just go there for it. Yes. Go make and teach, right? That's what it's limited to, and it's like, well, hold on. There's more to it than that because we're not just go making and teaching. We're doing it with all authority that's been given to us, and we're also then, verse 20, to teach them all that Christ has commanded. And that's that's the other aspect that's often left off is we're not teaching uh, what what's what, all that's been commanded, and um, and and so ultimately that's the mission of the church, right? Is is to yeah. is to put all things under the submission of Christ, who is the ruling and reigning King of the universe. And um, so that's in a nutshell, that's the Great Commission. That's the mission of the church. Um, before we, before we then dive into how we're how the church is failing, Andrew, would you like to add anything to that? Well, you've said it pretty well. I mean, the only thing I can do maybe is elaborate. I think uh, in modern times, the Great Commission has been uh, reduced to evangelism, yes. which is getting souls saved. Of course, that's uh, part of it. But you rightly pointed out there uh, that the goal is to disciple the nations, the uh, ethnos, the the peoples of the earth, and that's not merely getting them converted, but also teaching them to uh, to obey the Word of God in all aspects of their lives. Uh, the other thing you touched on I really appreciate is that stress on authority, and to me that sort of links the Great Commission with the cultural mandate mm-hmm. of Genesis 1, that man is called, godly man and woman are called to extend a loving, godly dominion over the rest of the earth. Uh, God's deputizing godly people to do his work in the earth. Now, God, of course, is sovereign. He could come down and do everything on his own, but he's chosen not to do that. He's created man in his image, and so he's given man a great deal of authority. Under his authority, of course, limited authority, but nonetheless, he's granted authority. Isn't it interesting that there's that same idea, not just there in Genesis 1, but as you indicated, Luke, uh, there in Matthew chapter 28, all authority is given to me, and he is transmitting that authority, we could say deputizing us, mm. to exercise the right kind of dominion in the earth. In fact, I would say that the Great Commission is the cultural mandate adapted to the post-fall condition. Mm. Of course, had men never fallen, then there would have been no, necess- uh, no need for Christ to die and rise again, but of course, man did fall, and Christ did come, and shed his blood on the cross and rose again and is redeeming us, but he has given us, the Church of Jesus Christ, the responsibility to press those redemptive claims on the earth, and by redemption he's not only redeeming souls, 
he's redeeming everything, Mm -hmm. according to Romans chapter 8. So the goal of the Church is to press the claims of Jesus Christ, the fully comprehensive, redemptive claims of Jesus Christ, in all areas of life. Not just snatch a soul here and there, not just get a few people converted, but to press the faith everywhere so that Christ is understood to be Lord everywhere. That, sort of in a nutshell, is what the Great Commission, linked to the cultural mandate, is all about. Right, exactly. And to kind of come back, bring this back to the uh, presidential um, race that's coming up, I think, I think I stole this from Doug, our friend Doug Wilson. Um, mm-hmm. uh, he, I think it was him, but if it wasn't, forgive me, but I think it was him. He's, he said basically, um, this isn't, we're not trying uh, to get uh, Christ elected, right? Like, that's not what we're doing with the gospel. We're not right. out there trying to get votes. Like, no, he's already ruling and reigning. And and our and our goal is to get people to submit to his lordship, not to vote him yes. as president of the universe. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I'm, many people don't understand that, but he's correct. Jesus Christ is already king of kings and lord of lords. Right. Uh, the only issue is whether humans recognize it. Believers, true believers, do recognize it, and they bow the knee to Jesus Christ. I mean, the goal of evangelism is to tell the good news. The good news is that all of those who trust in Christ and bow the knee to him will become citizens of his kingdom. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this election or that, though elections are important, uh, doesn't have anything to do whether Jesus Christ will be installed here or there. Jesus Christ was installed when he ascended, according to the book of Daniel. He's installed King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Our goal is to press the claim so everybody in politics and everybody where else recognizes the claims of Jesus Christ as our Savior King. Right, absolutely. And, uh, okay, so to kind of switch gears here for, for a minute, um, so what I really want to talk about is, is is how the Church then has failed in our mission, right? And, yeah. Um, and and so, so specifically, um, well, I would say, we've talked about this a lot, I would say that ultimately the reason the culture is what it is, the state of the culture, is a failure of the Church. Yeah, I agree with that. Without getting too far off and going on another tangent, I think you and I would both agree that it has a lot to do with faulty eschatology. That's another discussion yeah. for another day that we've discussed a lot mm-hmm. on the show. Mm-hmm. But it's right. been bad eschatology that's the church has abandoned the culture because we waited to be raptured off and so we've stopped um speaking into the culture, right? And um so one verse I want to look at here is um Matthew sixteen uh eighteen. And it says, and I tell you, uh, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We all know that verse. Um, yeah. But I think um, I think where the church has gone wrong, even simply in this verse, is we look, we see this verse and we think that the gates of hell are an, an offensive front, right? right. And so right. we sit, we sit, and I want, I, you have some awesome stuff I want to hear you say, Andrew, but... Um, we sit within the closed doors of our church buildings and, um, and I'll, I don't want to steal the term. I hope, I hope we use it. I hope you say it, what I want you to say, but we sit within the church and we don't go out and we, we, we act as if hell, the gates of hell are trying to get in, uh, to the church. Right. And, and it, that's not what gates do. Gates, no, no, that's gates are not, the metaf- exactly. Yeah, gates are not offensive. They're defensive. And the point is that the gates of hell will not um, stand against the church because the church should be going forth with the gospel, and the gospel should be knocking down the gates of hell. And so I was thinking a lot about this, and I, and I was thinking that the problem ultimately is not that the gates of hell 
have prevailed against the church, but that the gates of the church have failed against the doctrines of hell. And that these derelict gates ultimately are the negligent pastors, right? So it starts in the pulpit. It's the pastors that are allowing these doctrines of hell to come through the, the front doors of the church instead of pushing them out and instead of knocking down the gates of hell with the gospel, with the mission that Christ has given us. Um, so go ahead. I, go ahead, Andrew. No, Add no, that, that was, uh, I didn't want to interrupt you because that was so good, Luke. I <laughs> agree with all of that. Yeah, and you, in fact, you actually touched on the first uh, thing that I was going to say, and that is the uh, failure of pulpits to declare yeah. the entire counsel of God and preach the Word of God in its totality. Uh, I mean, there's so many things we could say, but uh, whether it's the sort of divided Bible that's preached, want to cut off the Old Testament and even a number of parts of the New Testament and only sort of uh, go like sugar dipping, try to find a little sugar here and there, mm. things that we like in the Word of God. And uh, the Church has been influenced heavily by existentialism and preaching that is designed to make people feel good rather than to obey the law of God. And to mention the law of God brings up the whole idea of antinomianism. Yep. It's remarkable how many churches are anti-law they do understand we're saved entirely by grace, justified by grace through faith, and of course that is true. But they think because of that, that the law or good works are something we shouldn't mention very much, but that's false. The law of God is a transcription of God's character and his truth and his holiness. Mm. And so the law of God is a standard we should live by. It also, by the way, in its appropriate sphere, is the, uh, the standard for uh, civil law. Yes. Uh, that uh, our civil, positive civil law should be in line with and conform to uh, the civil law uh, of the Bible. So there's been a, a remarkable failure of the pulpits um, to declare the Word in its totality, and as I'm going to address it to Reform Con, to address the Word of God and the issues publicly. Mm. There is the notion that Jesus is Lord in our families and in our churches, but to address issues outside, that's all, quote, political. Well, I don't want to say much about abortion, because, you know, that's a political issue. I don't want to say much about uh, same-sex marriage. Of course, it's not really marriage, but because that's a political issue, or socialism, because that's a political issue. Well, those aren't specifically political issues. Those are biblical issues. Those are moral issues. And if a pastor doesn't address them, he's not really preaching the Word of God in its totality. And Joe Boot and I were talking about this one time in London. He made a very, very good point. If that is the church's attitude, the pastor's attitude, we're not going to address anything considered political. Then in our time, when everything becomes political, the church will eventually have nothing to preach. Because the notion that Jesus Christ is uniquely the Son of God, and you must trust in him to be saved, is increasingly becoming a political issue. It's considered hate speech. So what is the church going to do? Well, if it's consistent, they'll say, well, we can't really teach or preach that Jesus Christ is the only way, well then, of course, we've completely lost the faith. Right. And that's where we're heading, because of the failure of the Church to preach, and pulpits in particular, of course, to preach and teach the entire counsel of God. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, I, get, I got this from Joe, but he, he says all the time that politics are just legislative morality. Right. That's right. And so it's, it's not a matter of things being political or not political. It's all moral. The question that's is, right. which morality are you going to legislate? Yeah, that's right. I mean, law itself is an enactment of morality. I mean, why do we have speed limit uh, uh, laws? Well, right. rightly or wrongly, at least some people are thinking, well, if you go faster, you might kill people. <laughs> now, I'm not arguing what the speed limit should be, but there's right. a, there is a moral impetus right. behind that law. Right. 
And that's true of all laws. Even if they're false, even liberal laws behind them is a form of morality. False morality, of course, sure. but a morality. It's all about what you think is right and wrong. As Christians, we believe the Bible tells us what is right and wrong. Absolutely. And uh, so the term I was hoping you were going to use, it's okay that you didn't, because I'm going to say it now, but when we interviewed you, interviewed you in, in July, you were, you were describing the failure of the church as incestuous. Can you can you tell us about that? <laughs> okay. I, I was when you said that, I don't know if you remember because you were looking at the camera. I do remember, yes. Jeff Sorry, and I, I didn't use it. about I, fell I'll out be, of I'll our be chairs. Happy to elaborate. <laughs> Go for it. Yes. I want to hear it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this is the problem of many and we're not by the way, we're not talking about liberal churches here. We're talking about sure. conservative evangelical churches. For so many of them, they see everything they see the church itself as the kingdom of God and everything inwardly. So there are constant capital campaigns, and many of the larger churches, a new Sunday school wing, a new Awana program, everything is designed to turn inward, we would mm-hmm. say incestuously, to mm-hmm. turn inward on making the church grow internally or offering more programs. Now, that's not inherently wrong to have programs in a church, but the objective and goal of the church is to extend the kingdom of God. Right. That's the deputizing of Matthew chapter 28, teaching the entire world, all of the nations of the world, to bow the knee to be discipled, to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. So a church that sees the church as an end in itself is not fulfilling its calling. Mm. The end or goal or objective of the church is to press the kingdom of God in society. And if it's become incestuous, then it's not fulfilling what God wants. And eventually those churches, and many of them can become large, mega churches, right. but they're just very sickly giants. They're just mm. sickly giants. And they're not doing anything. This is why, and I think I mentioned this is July. in July, how is it possible that in those very areas where we have the largest evangelical megachurches, we often have the greatest depravity? Hmm. How do you, cultural depravity, I mean, around the church, how do you explain that? Well, the church is incestuous. The church might be getting larger, but it's not having any kingdom impact. Hmm. Biblically, if yeah. the church is having any impact, it's doing what you guys are doing at Apology at the church there, speaking at the city council about abortion mm. and being out on the streets. I'm not saying every single church at every single time has to be doing that, but they've got to be doing something yeah. to press the claim, uh, claims of Christ in culture. Yeah, absolutely. Man, that's that's good, brother. I, I don't remember you saying that. You probably did. I must have missed it. That's, that's, you were asleep in that part I might of the have been, yeah. I, I had, that's when I had fallen out of my chair, and so I was getting <laughs> myself back up. I still couldn't believe you said incestuous, and so I was yeah. thinking about that, and I missed the other thing. But that's great; that's excellent. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah. uh, um, that's one reason why I like you so much. You're a bit, you're a bit wordsmithy. I love wordsmith, so uh, <laughs> thank you for that. Um, okay. Um, <laughs> so, uh, anyways, so I, I like I like to kind of what you were talking about is what our, again J- Joe Boot calls churchianity. Um, mm-hmm. You know, where it's it's all about the church and not about the kingdom, right? And yes. and one term I really l- love to use because of the idea that it portrays is is church militant. And that's a term that was, you know, the reformers used and the idea is that that the church should be militant. We not that we're looking to fight with guns uh, you know, and 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 violence, right. but the idea is that we're fighting, we're in a war, we should be soldiers and we should be going forth, right? And, um, again, it, um, just going back to what I was saying earlier about with the gates of hell, um, the church, the church institution, right. Ultimately was not designed, nor was it intended to serve as a bunker. 
Um, That's right. Neither was it designed or intended to serve as a last line of defense. But actually, the the church institution is designed to serve as a war academy, preparing and equipping soldiers to go forth into war. And that's where we get this idea of of church militant, right? Um, and so the, the church organism then is, is intended to advance in war until the enemy is defeated. And that's why Scripture says, that's why Christ said that the gates of hell won't prevail against the church because we will ultimately right. defeat them. And that's when, of course, well, I'm not going to get into eschatology today, but that, you know, when, when that happens and all enemies will be put under Christ's feet. Um, so, um, uh, anyways, okay. So let's see what we're doing time here. Let's, um, let's go to, let's go to break. I'll, I'll let you add to that. And then, and then we'll go to break after that before I switch gears again. No, no I'll just say briefly, you're right about church militants. I mean, the, the notion that many people have today, sort of continuing on with that metaphor, is let's just get inside the four walls of the church and yep. huddle together quietly, and a Satan is coming to beat down our doors, let's just grab a couple of little gospel grenades and throw them over the walls and mm. hope that we hit somebody. That's not the biblical notion at all. It's that the church is outpressing the faith everywhere and storming the gates of hell. And also, by the way, those that have gone on to meet the Lord, remember they're called not the church militant, but the church triumphant. Right. So there's yes. the notion of victory yes. that you're talking about earlier. So this, I, I must say before we go to break, this paradigm is a big paradigm shift for a lot of evangelicals. Yes. They're going to have to force them to rethink what it means to be uh, a church, in fact, what it might even mean to be a Christian. Yes. Uh, not whether they're saved or not, they certainly can be that, but I mean to live out the Christian life as they should, this, this paradigm will cause them to rethink much of what they've known already. Yes, Absolutely. Excellent, excellent. Okay, well, let's go ahead and go to break then. Um, Isaac, if you want to get that up, and then when we come back, we'll finish this discussion with my good friend Andrew Sandlin. We'll see you on the other side. What up, what up? Welcome back to Apologia Radio. I am uh, super excited about this show that we're doing today, and it's going really great, and I'm thankful again for my friend Andrew Sandlin here to be on the show so we're just gonna we're gonna come pick it right back up where we left off here um and uh continue again uh, we're, we're talking about how the church has failed its its mission ultimately and uh, so I'm actually gonna I'm gonna read a quote here um from Joe Boot um he said uh, and this is in in mission his book in mission he said that the decline of a robust, full, vital, and applied Christianity in the West is clearly evidenced in our society's preponderance of ungodly laws, apostate educational practices, secular political outlook, and overtly neo-pagan arts and entertainment, to name just a few areas. Christians have allowed and sometimes even been instrumental in furthering this decline. An impoverished understanding of our mission has increasingly led us to either abandon these key areas of life and culture in the name of true piety or to uncritically adopt or synthesize them with our faith in the name of relevance or even wisdom. In either case, we have tacitly accepted an unbelieving view of the world as normative. And once this has happened, we are in urgent need of fundamental redirection and reformation. And so that's what we're talking about today. We need to get back to where the church was two, 300 years ago. Um, and I, again, we mentioned at the beginning, a lot of it is, is just, uh, like Joe's just said there in that quote, it's, it's trying to be too relevant, right? And, uh, pastors are trying to be too relevant. We're not, um, 
Okay, so before I get into this, that I just thought of something. So one, speaking of pastors, uh, one thing that's that's been on my mind a lot the last couple of years, I've been studying shepherds and and you know when when Christ talks about being the good shepherd, like what what did he mean, right? And and so in in biblical times, a shepherd um, literally was when Christ says, "I am the door," like yeah. They literally were the door to the sheepfold. The the pastors yeah. would sleep in the doorway to the sheep sheepfold, and so if you were either getting in or getting out, you had to go through the shepherd, and yeah. or over him, or take him out completely, right? And right. and that's a perfect picture of of just again how the how the church has failed because pastors have failed to act as the door to the church to their congregations, and they've just allowed whatever all the secular um liberal leftist uh nonsense uh, doctrines of hell to come straight through the door of the church um and so what i wanted to get in here a little bit is just uh you know we obviously scripture talks about the church or talks about us as christians being salt and light to the culture right and again i've mentioned that we've we've retreated into our our pietistic pietistic bunkers and there's like a there's a there's a um an image I always like to use, and it's the idea of it's like the church has we've pretended to tie our shoes for a really long time. <laughs> yeah, it's like you just keep down you're just down there with your head down. Oh, I'm tying my shoe. I'm busy. Meanwhile, the yeah. the culture is going to hell in a handbasket, right? And we're just sorry, my shoe's still untied. I'll I'll be back up in a minute. And um uh. But the Reformed tradition re- re- refers to the, the living and breathing church. Or again, going back to the church militant. We're living, we're breathing, we're active. Um, we should be anyways. Unfortunately, again, the church has not been mm-hmm. active. It's not been militant in our culture. Um, um, but we, we, but what we should do is just being, uh, we, we should be vigorously involved in our mission in the culture. And I, you mentioned that, I think, before the break. Andrew, just that's one one thing we're trying to do here at Apologia is be vigorously active in the culture, in the community, uh, with the government, wherever we can, um, just speaking into the culture. And I believe it's Proverbs 24, forgive me, I think I may, I may have forgot the reference, but um, it, it says that um, essentially where, um, where there's, there's been no, no gospel proclamation or no prophetic vision into the culture, then it says the people cast off restraint. That's right. Um, and that's what's that's what's happened is the church has stopped having a prophetic witness into the culture, and now the people have cast off restraint. We see it's some of the craziest stuff going on right now, especially with like the gay agenda and the trans agenda, and like you're seeing trans story time at the live public library. It's like. What has right. happened is because the people have been given over to the sin, Romans 1, they've cast off restraint because the church has failed to have a prophetic witness. And and uh, one thing I, I I think of this is, is nothing more than spiritualized cowardice, right? And I'm going to quote you here, Andrew. Uh, I love this quote from you. Um, you you, said, you call this a pious goop of spineless religion. And then yes. you went on to say this appeasement reinforces the cultural irrelevance of Christianity has become the unintentional ally of secularists and pagans. So I want you to talk about that there for a minute. Yeah. Um, 
There's no question that pietism, and by that, uh, I don't mean piety. We should be pious before God, that is, devoted to him and humble before him. Pietism, when you speak about it generically, means limiting the faith to our vertical relationship to God and our family and, at most, our church, the refusal, like you say, to speak prophetically. A pietist will often say, we don't want to address those issues because we don't, here it comes, Luke, be contaminated by the world. Mm. We want to be separated uh, from the world. And the other rationale is, well, that's not our responsibility anyway. Mm. But if we just keep ourselves walled off in the church and in our families and so on, uh, we'll be safe from all of these bad things. It doesn't matter that there's all this depravity and abortion and homosexuality and socialism and wokeness and uh, cultural Marxism and all this stuff. It doesn't matter that that's out there because we're safe. But there's nothing sacred to the devil, and so what he, what he has done is come into the church. Because we refuse to go out and fight him mm. on the territory that he's contesting, he comes in to our territory. Right. I like to say that pietism today, Luke, is finally getting its comeuppance. Mm. Because essentially what happens if, is this. If you pull yourself back into, refuse to go into the culture, pull yourself back into the church and in the family, you don't become purer, you don't become more spiritual, you just allow Jesus Christ, you just allow Satan rather to influence all of those areas of life that you've abandoned. Right. And those areas become stronger and then they also start influencing the church. Because people inside the church, because they don't hear prophetic preaching and teaching about all of these issues that I mentioned, again, homosexuality and abortion and socialism and this uh, pornography, all this whole secularism, paganism, this whole array of issues, because they're not addressed, because they're too worldly, they pick up sinful, worldly, depraved ideas, and bring them back into the church. Yeah. That is how, and, and pietism, because of its faithlessness, it's unintentional, but nonetheless been faithless, is getting its comeuppance. And now you have, even in prominent conservative reform denominations, the wokeness worldview, yep, yep. and the socialist worldview, how in the world, even five or ten years ago, we would say, this could never, ever happen. How could it happen? because the Church has not been bold in pressing the faith and pressing biblical law and pressing the fullness of the Gospel. Pulpits have been failures, and because of that now, when we should be, and here's the key, Luke, if we refuse to fight the devil out in the Satan in the culture, we will eventually be fighting him inside the Church. Mm. Mm, that's good. He will, not he will not respect the four walls of the Church. He will not say that the four walls of our family are sacred. Nothing is sacred to him. So our view is the best defense is a good offense. Yeah, that's good. Every uh, area of life is contested, so we need to contest him everywhere. Right. I don't mean right. every single Christian can do that everywhere, but the church as a whole, every church, every individual has a responsibility to contest Satan wherever God has placed them. And that's not just in the family or in the church. Yeah, that's good, brother. Um, absolutely, man, that's good. I To kind of tie, uh, talk a little bit more about this pious group of spineless religion i was i was going to say that um ultimately this again this is what the church has become i i call this spiritual jello jigglers right <laughs> yes yes um and there's you know that there's the saying it's impossible to to nail jello to the wall like you can't yes. do it and and really that accurately represents a lot of the mainstream pastors we're talking about in our culture yeah um they're they they're jello spiritual jello jigglers you can't nail them down on any sort of uh, objective standard of God's truth. Um, yeah. And uh, so I have a quote from Bonson here. 
um, going back to salt, the being salt and light, he said the salt yeah. has lost its saltiness. And um, our our current culture, right, does not have a pleasant taste. It doesn't taste good. Right. It doesn't taste right. salty. It tastes like blood. Yeah. Right. So you know, I I always I ask the question: Have you been punched in the mouth? You bet your lip. Of course, we all have. We've all tasted that blood. It tastes gross, right? It tastes like iron. Yeah. But that's precisely the taste that our that our culture is currently leaving in our mouths, right? When we when we live in this culture of death, and and the and the flavor of that culture is bloodlust, then we the church we've entirely failed to add the salty flavor, the preserving flavor of the gospel to the culture. Um, yeah. And then, um, uh, sorry, were you going to say something? Well, I, just one quick thing. Yes. I think when we, when the church refuses to address these issues out on the culture and contest the devil out on the culture, then of course we have a new normal. Depravity becomes normal and the church becomes desensitized. And that's why I think the majority of Christians and churches in the U.S., even conservatives, will say, well, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't commit abortion myself. I wouldn't yeah. recommend it. But, you know, I mean, after all, that's the way things are. And let's not get too upset about it. Or same-sex marriage, after all, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't recommend it. But, you know, it's probably okay if other people do it. After all, it's their choice. You see how if you refuse to battle in the culture, the culture's new normality becomes depravity. And then that becomes normal, not just in the culture, but to the church, mm. it becomes desensitized to the evil. That's what happens. Absolutely. Um, and so from there, I want to look then real quickly at Matthew 5.13. And that says, mm-hmm. this is Christ, it says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's yeah. feet. And again, like Bonson said, the salt has lost its saltiness. It's lost. We've lost uh, our flavor and, and, and Christ here says when salt has lost its flavor, it's good for nothing except to be trampled under the feet of the culture. So it should be no surprise to us then when that's what's happening to the church, when we're being trampled under the foot, the feet of the culture. It's because we don't taste good anymore. We've lost, we've lost the, our saltiness, our, and, and there's no need for us at that point of, you know, just going off of what Christ here said. Um, and, uh, and we ultimately... Because of this, the church, the gospel, Christ's kingdom, the Bible, like it's become a laughing stock of the culture again because we've lost our flavor. We're being trampled under the underfoot of this gross, depraved culture. Um, now, all that to say, although the culture, of course, is culpable for their sin and their desire for death, I again would say that the church is at fault because. Yeah of our lack of salt, of our lack of light, of yeah. our lack of flavor. We're, we're, we're just, we're, we're at fault. Um, and so to get into, to the, away from the flavor aspect to the preserving aspect, salt's primary purpose ultimately is not to flavor your food, right? But it was actually to serve as a preservative. That's what right. salt does. It preserves life. You know, as we all know before the refrigerators, they use salt to preserve meat it ex- it literally extended the life of a slaughtered animal right before right. rot and decay took hold of it so so preservatives are added to food to extend its shelf life um, medicine is used to preserve human life and the church's mission then is to preserve and extend the life of the culture through the gospel um, and because we failed to do this the culture then of course we reeks of death 
and decay. So instead of extending life, the culture is literally, literally shortening it. And we list a number of things, a number of ways that shortening life, right? Homosexuality, yeah. abortion, euthanasia. Now we have these climate control freaks that are saying yeah. that they're not going to have children. I'm saying, thank you. Don't. Because yeah. guess who is having children? It's Christians, and we That's will right. overtake you sooner. It's gonna. It may take a generation or two, but we will. We will outgrow you. So please yeah. don't have children. Thank you for that. Um, but the point is, they're they're intentionally uh, shortening their lifespans in order, which we, without getting too far off track here, that gets into the idolatry and and worship of of the planet and and nature and all that. Um, but anyways, okay. What what do you have? What are your thoughts on that, Andrew? Whoa, so much there. I know, I threw a lot at you. No, no, I just relished uh, listening to you. No, I think that's that's correct. I think the bottom line here is the Church has been responsible. And uh, as much as we might like to skirt the issue of eschatology, you notice really, um, much of what we said, eschatology has implicitly been, been woven into it. Because let's think about this for a minute. If you believe that the Church's ultimate goal is escape from the world, to be taken out of the world, mm. to go to some sort of heaven and outer space and leave the world for the Antichrist. Obviously, you're not going to be thinking in terms of salting the culture in any way or yeah. preserving the culture. That that notice or that idea has no meaning whatsoever. But if you recognize that the the objective of the church is to influence all of the culture, with the goal being the extension of the kingdom of God in time and history, as I believe the uh, Old Testament promises say, and a number in the New Testament, if you understand that's what our destiny is, according to the predestined will of God, then you're going to act very differently than if you think that the Bible teaches escape. Now, if you think about it for a minute, Luke, the Bible is, with respect to the people of God, it's not really about escape. Mm -hmm. It's about battle and engagement. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jesus Christ didn't escape the cross. He got victory through the cross, yeah. on the other side. And the children of Israel didn't escape battle. God called them to battle. And Isaiah didn't escape battle. And Paul didn't escape battle. And you think of almost all the great characters in the Bible. Uh, they didn't escape. God didn't deliver them from all hardship and battle and difficulty. He gave them victory within those battles. Right. And victory at the end. So the notion that we can escape a tribulation and that our goal is basically to get ourselves pietistically ready to meet the Lord without fulfilling our responsibility on the earth is to fundamentally misunderstand what the Christian religion is all about. And I'm going to address it at the RefCon, by the way. Sweet. Can't wait it's to It's to that. fundamentally misunderstand what Christianity is all about. Christianity is not chiefly about going to heaven when you die, though thank God we'll be with the Lord eternally, by the way, on earth a new heavens and a new earth, not quite sort of up in heaven floating around. Mm. But the Bible actually says very little about that. Christianity is basically about extending the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the imperial gospel in this life. Yes, That's what Christianity is about. And if we're constantly talking about an escapist form of faith, that's not biblical Christianity. But sadly, Luke, that's what's being preached in a large number of our conservative churches yes, today. Absolutely. Um, and I'm glad you brought up the imperial gospel again. I'm going to get to that before we end, but to, to kind of jump off then what you were just saying. So, um, you know, again, of course, instead of, instead of the, the church speaking into the culture, we've hid from it. Right. And, and yeah. the longer the church has sat around waiting to be raptured, like you just said, 
the worse the culture has become, and the worse the culture has become, the more irrelevant the gospel has become. And the Proverbs, I was mentioning earlier, I told you wrong, it's Proverbs 19.18. It says, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. said that. But I forgot to mention the second half. But blessed is he who keeps the law. Yeah. And and again, that's that's that important thing. It's like, oh yeah, there's that law thing. There's that objective standard of truth and yeah. objective standard of morality that we should that should be part of the prophetic vision. Um and and so um um this ties back into salt and light here real quick. And so again, we are to be the the light of the world. Salt and light. So we talked about light or salt being flavor, being preserved, now light of the world. We, we know the verse, so it's a, we're supposed to be a city on a hill in order to illuminate the way to Christ, right? That's our mission. But in selfish fear, we've hidden that lamp under a basket. We all know the song. Actually, we haven't hid it under a basket. We've hid it within the four walls of the church. We all know the song. Should we hide it under a, ba- a bushel? No. If you grew up in the church and you, you were a kid, you know that song. You, you yell, no. Like, we know that. It's fun. It's a fun song to sing. But we haven't listened to that song. <laughs> We haven't we haven't actually listened to what it says. We've hid that light within the four walls of our church and not even like put it outside the door <laughs> so you yes, know where and, to go. And to think about the implications of that for a minute, Luke. So we're not yeah. just salt, but we're also light. So the idea there, Jesus again talks about the darkness in the world, and of course he's the true light and we reflect his light. So our responsibility as we go out in the world is not simply to live a light-filled life. That's true. Mm. We have too many mm-hmm. Christians that don't live according to God's Word and aren't in submission to Him. But light isn't just turned inward. Here's your word again, incestuously. Yeah. It's sort of pressed outward. So essentially, Jesus Christ is assuming that, assuming that His disciples will shed light on the situations that confront them. All of this darkness, whether it's political darkness, or whether it's social darkness, or whether it's sexual darkness, or whether it's economic darkness, or educational darkness. See, Christians are the light that dispels this darkness. Yeah. So if we're constantly hiding in our bushel, hiding inside the four walls of the church and in our family, we're not addressing the socialist evils of Elizabeth Warren, and we're <laughs> not to, taking on the... Uh, elitist idea in, uh, of cultural Marxism and wokeness and intersectionality in major universities, if we're not shedding light on that darkness, we're not really fulfilling what God called us to do. Right. And that's where that metaphor is often misunderstood. It's not just the light of, well, our light is that I live in the right way before God. That's necessary. Yeah. But shedding light pushes darkness out wherever it is. Exactly. And yeah. not just that we ourselves are living a godly life, but we're showing the truth, we're shedding the light of the truth of truth of God on all of these other areas where there's darkness. Right. And I, I love that that explanation. And even to take that further, it's not light isn't only uh, pushing out darkness, it's exposing evil. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so the evil that's happening in the darkness, when it's when the light hits it, it's exposed. And the fact right. that, that that evil hasn't been exposed for so long is, is a testament to the fact that the church has failed to that's right. sh- shine forth the light. Yeah, uh, that, and, and as you well know, and I mean criminals know this, as long as they can get away with things in the darkness, they'll just make bigger plans. Sure. Well, if we can get away with this without being detected, then we're just going to go rob a bigger bank, or we're going to kill more people. Or, yeah. But it's when the, the, the light shines on them and exposes them, where everybody can see it and people start addressing it, that reduces the sin in society. And of course, that's exactly what the gospel does. It reduces sin, not just in our hearts, but in a culture. Yeah. Exactly, and a perfect example, practical example, uh, we hear this argument all the time when it comes to the fight to end abortion. Uh, 
you hear you hear the pro the pro aborts say something like well if you if you make abortion illegal then there's just going to be more back alley abortions and i'm yeah. like okay well good that's where they should be happening right <laughs> they shouldn't be happening yeah. legally I mean, that's in the, the open so stupid what if we make a rape or murder illegal i mean that's just it's it's right silly the yeah. argument's stupid right yeah it's stupid all right Okay, so let's let's finish this then on the imperial gospel, which ties into this perfectly. Um, actually, that's how I first that's how I first heard of you. We've, we've had you on to talk about this. You did a mm-hmm. show with Ryan, um, with Ryan Aris on the imperial gospel, and I was like, "What is this amazing thing I just heard?" Um, and so I I want you to know I have I have adopted that, and I have taken it now to Australia, New Zealand, and and Ireland, and so. Uh, and I'll be talking about it again at uh, an abortion now conference. Um, well, I'm I'm grateful to you, my friend. I really appreciate it and humbled by it. Well, it's it's powerful, and and so it's my pleasure. But the 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 idea then is that the imperial gospel, and I I love that the how you said this. It, it's designed the gospel's designed in such a way to eliminate all rivals. Yeah. And if it's if if we're not in the business of eliminating rivals, then we have no business preaching the gospel. That's right. The the gospel is not a message of peaceful coexistence with evil. That's what people need to understand. The gospel is designed to get rid of sin. Mm -hmm. It gets rid of sin, first of all, the guilt of sin before God and our justification, but also the pollution and corruption of sin, and not just in our own lives, but in all areas of life. Now think about ancient Israel real quick. Why did God abominate and sent his judgment on syncretism and idolatry when Israel tried to join itself to other gods, because he will accept, accept no rivals. So the gospel ba- basically is the message of the king that if you trust in me and bow to my lordship, mm-hmm. you'll be saved. That's not salvation by works. That's just recognizing that we have to cast ourselves completely on the Lord for salvation. The gospel is not a message that, well, I'm going to add Jesus on to my own New Age lifestyle, or I'm going to attach Christianity to my own profligate sexuality. I mean, after all, I would like Jesus. He could be like a little talisman. Hmm. He, he could sort of help me out of difficult situations. There's nothing of that in the gospel. Right. The right. gospel is designed to transform people and to transform cultures because it's the gospel of the king. In fact, that's the first thing is we read about Jesus and his preaching. He went everywhere preaching the gospel of the kingdom, uh, not the gospel right. of fire insurance. Uh, it's not the gospel to rescue people from hell, though it does that, thank God. It's to cause people to surrender to, to Christ the King. Mm-hmm. And uh, not just individuals, but as Matthew 28 says, and you read initially, uh, cultures, uh, nations and cultures. And if we're not preaching that gospel, and also pastors teaching people that that is the gospel, they fundamentally missed the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's clear in, 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 in uh, Ephesians 1 and Colossians chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 1, and I could go on and on. A number of verses in the Bible teach this. Mm. Yes, excellent. And so I I want to piggyback off that a little bit. So um, I love the history you, you talk about in, in the where you get the idea of the, the gospel being imperial. And, and so historically, you have uh, you, the euangelion, right? It's the good news in, in the yeah. New Testament. That's the gospel. And you would have, like, for for Caesar, you literally have the the euangelion bearers, the good news bearers, yeah. who would go before yeah. the king, announcing the king's coming, 
you know, he's won, he's, he's coming in victory. And that's, that's what we are to be for Christ because Christ has won. He has victorious and we're to come announcing that. And, and I love why this is Imperial is, um, uh, we've probably all heard this religious principle from the Roman empire and it was regarding uh, Caesar Augustus, but it said salvation is to be found in none other save Augustus. And there was no other name given to men in which they can be saved. And we yeah, hear, that's sounding very familiar to yes, your audience. Isn't exactly. It? That's what I was going to say. So as Christians, we go, Oh, that sounds familiar. That's because it sounds a lot like Acts four twelve, right? which says, and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So this was a direct affront to the imperial worship of Caesar. So Peter yes. Peter understood exactly what he was saying. The Christians knew exactly what they were saying. The Christians weren't persecuted because they were Christians, right? right. Rome Rome encouraged religious yes. freedom to to worship whoever you wanted as long as you would say that Caesar was king, Kaiser Curia. Yeah, the issue, you're so right, Luke, the issue never was private religion. In fact, Rome loved when they conquered a people to take the images of the conquered people and put them in their little pantheon. Look what we have here. Oh, the more gods, the merrier. I mean, they collected yeah. gods like Philatelius collect stamps. I mean, <laughs> that wasn't the issue, what you do in your private life or between your two ears or privately. The issue is, will you swear allegiance and bow the knee to Caesar? And yeah. the Christian says, we're not revolutionaries, we're not going to get spears and go kill people, but we're certainly not going to bow the knee to Caesar. We bow yeah. the knee to one, Jesus Christ. And we, Luke, are I'm ending on a sermon here, Luke. That's we're okay. fighting that battle today yep. when people come and say, you have to bake a cake the way I want it done to celebrate perversion. You have to sell what I want you to sell in violation of your convictions, or you're going to suffer the wrath of the state. We have to decide, are we going to bow the knee to Jesus and say, Jesus is Lord, or the state is Lord? And the fact is, Jesus is Lord, and we must say that and act it out everywhere. Yes. So ultimately, to bring it into modern terms, right? What what's being what we're being forced to say is Demas Kyrios, right? Yes. The, the yes. democracy, the the state is king, um, yes. and is Lord, and 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 so the church has gone along with that instead of saying what the apostles the early disciples said was we have no king but christ right that's right and that's what the church should be saying saying that's how we failed we're not saying we have no king but christ we're saying yes yeah, we, that's we, not that is what you have just said there and by the way a lot of people don't know we talk about creeds and confessions and we of course have some good ones the actual first creed of the church was in english that little creed it's called jesus is lord mm. That was the first creed of the Church. And if you want to reduce it down, and we don't have to, we need really robust creeds, but if someone says in three words, give me your creed, we should say, Luke, Jesus is Lord. Amen. Jesus is Master. Jesus is King. That is our basic foundational fundamental creed. And to tie it all back in together as we end the show, right, that's, the, that's Lordship Salvation, and that is... Um, where the church again has failed in the great commission because we've we've just preached jesus as savior not we've jesus, jesus as lord savior, and or savior. even here's the thing luke even if we've said he's lord he's only lord of a few narrow areas i exactly. love you remember people sometimes say i love jesus is lord on the he's ruling on the throne of my heart <laughs> and that's good 
and he should, but he's not only ruling on the throne of your heart. Right. He's ruling from heaven and everywhere, and we need to let everybody know that. Jesus is Lord of everything, not just our hearts. Exactly. Whew. Amen, brother. We actually, I don't have it on. We have new shirts if you go to shop.apologiastudios.com. Uh, and if you come to ReformCon, we'll have them there as well. We have uh, new shirts that say um, Define Tyrants since 2010, Apology of Church, and on it says No King But Christ. Um, Amen. And so that's what we should be doing if we're if we're um, if we're ac- actually vigorously um, carrying out the Great Commission. So, Andrew, thank you so much, brother, for being on. This has been such a yes, blessing. sir. Look, appreciate uh, you guys. Apologia, and look forward to seeing you here in about a month. Yes, sir. All right, everybody. Thank you so much. This was like a really great episode. I'm very excited about this. Um, as always. Thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who's who's all access that supports this. Everything we do is because of you. Thank you for partnering with us. If you're not, sign up for all access. You can go to apologiastudios.com. Sign up right there. It's $9.95 a month, and you help us do what we're doing. Um, so with that, again, go to reformcon.org. You can get your tickets. Uh, space is limited, so get those soon. And I hope to see you all there. God bless, and no king but Christ. Amen.